This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. The book of Philippians, uh, this time chapter 4. We're almost at an end. We're in the home straight, as it were. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. And of course, this is the little letter that Paul wrote to one of his favorite churches in Philippi. Ten years uh, prior to writing this, uh, he founded it and uh, kept in close contact with it. And it's very evident very obvious when you read through the letter uh, how much love and appreciation that he had for this church and the feeling was quite mutual. It was a church that gave him much pleasure and much joy. And in fact, he mentions joy so many times in this little letter. Uh, So we begin reading then from verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Uh, Notice the terms that he uses. It's almost as if he's straining for another adjective to describe his love and his thoughts towards this uh, wonderful church. Over and over again, right at the very beginning of the letter, he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer, making requests for you all with joy. And here he is again calling them his beloved, his joy, his crown. And then he adds, he says, so stand fast in the Lord. Now, for those of you who have been going through this with us, uh, you'll notice this is a recurring theme. Uh, Let me just mention right almost, well, almost from the beginning Uh, of his letter. He said, and this I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may prove the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And then towards the end of chapter 1, he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or are absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, of any comfort of love, of any fellowship of the Spirit, of any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. And then again in chapter 2 and verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so here then towards the end of his letter in chapter 4, so stand fast in the Lord beloved. So you can sense from that 
even if you're reading that for the first time, you can sense that he's getting at something. He's hinting at something. He's working towards something he's going to say. Now, he's being gentle. He's not being harsh here. But there's something wrong in this church, and he's going to mention it. He's going to deal with it. But he loves the church, and he loves everybody in the church. So he's being careful how he phrases this. But notice this. Here's what the problem is. In verse 2, I implore Euodia, I implore Sintiche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Obviously, there had been some tension and some differences between these two ladies in the church. Now, these are good ladies. He goes on to say that in a moment. But there's something has happened between them that hasn't been resolved. And the fact that he mentions it at all shows us that it wasn't just a little thing. It wasn't just somebody just had a couple of words with somebody. This is something that had been going on for a while. This is something that had been brewing for a long time. This is something that was now permeating into the whole fellowship. And it was concerning him. And he does something that he rarely ever does. He actually mentions the people concerned. Now, of course, Paul mentions many names in in the last part of the letter to Romans. When he wrote to the Romans, he mentions over 30 people who had helped him that he approved of and that were good and helped him in the gospel. And uh, in another section, at one point, he mentions Alexander the coppersmith, who did me much harm. The Lord reward him according to his works. But it was highly unusual for him to mention uh, two people, two believers in a church that were at loggerheads. Now, remember that this letter was read out publicly. So whenever this letter came to this church at Philippi, someone would get up and say, here's a letter from Paul, let's read this, and let's hear what he had to say. Now, can you imagine if you were Yodi and Sintiche sitting in that church, and suddenly your names are mentioned, and Paul is saying, listen, I don't know what it is that's happening between you two, but get your act together, because it's starting to affect everybody else. That's, in effect, what he's saying here. The fact that he was able to say their names means that he must have felt that they had the maturity to handle this and that they could handle it and that they would deal with it and that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be something that would be a, a surprise to everybody else in the church because everybody else knew about it. And that's why he's mentioning it. And so he, right from the beginning of the letter, he's hinting, he's giving clues. There's something not right. You need to be in the same mind. You need to be singing of the same hymn sheet here. There's something's not well. There's something's happening. You need to get this together. That's what he's saying. So he said, I implore you, Odia, I implore Sintiche, that there be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I urge you, true companion. We don't know who this true companion was. He didn't say. And he didn't elaborate on what the problem was between these two women either. But he didn't say who the true companion was. Some say it was Epaphroditus. Uh, some say it was Dr. Luke. 
Dr. Luke was there whenever the church was founded, and it, it, historians seem to think that he stayed there for a while when the other team left, and he joined them a few years later. So maybe it was Dr. Luke, but it was somebody that he felt could help these two ladies uh, deal with whatever this issue was. And also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's a lovely term, the book of life. Old F.B. Meyer, I was reading just the other day, uh, he calls it God's birthday book for the twice born. <laughs> Isn't that nice? God's birthday book for the twice born. That's us. And then he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Now this in a way, is wonderful the fact that here is a man who is under house arrest for two years in Rome, who's already spent two years jail in Caesarea. So that's four years he's either been in jail or under house arrest. Uh, he's not been able to do his normal type ministry, although he, he wrote wonderful prison epistles. This is one of them in that incarceration. But he's not out there evangelizing the way he wants to be and the things he wants to do, really. And yet, in spite of all of that that's happening, in spite of, the Bible says, where he says, the care of all the churches that have come upon him, in spite of all of that, he's encouraging this church to rejoice in the Lord always. What a man. What a statement. What an attitude. And again I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness, let your graciousness, let your forbearance be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. So in spite of all that you're going through, in spite of all of the pressures and the tensions that's coming from the outside because these Christians in Philippi were under pressures from the government, from society in general at large against them, and now there's a possibility there's division rising up on the inside. But in spite of all of that, he says, let your graciousness and your forbearance be known unto all men because they're watching you outside and they're watching you on the inside. So he says, let that be your attitude. The Lord is at hand. Commentators are divided over exactly what he meant by that. Does he mean the Lord is just about to come? Or does he mean the Lord is literally in the midst, at hand, close near you? My guess is he meant both. <laughs> he lived in the light of his coming at all times. And so, in, in fact that the Lord is with us, and in fact that he is about to come, then show grace and show forbearance. Then he said, be anxious for nothing. Isn't that a powerful, powerful statement? Be anxious for nothing. We, we live in a world that's full of angst. It's riddled with anxiety. Turn on your six o'clock news and you'll get a thousand things that will worry you if you want to worry. There's tons of things that are happening around the world right now as we speak. They're a cause for great concern. And if you weren't careful, you'd be full of anxiety and fear and worry and stress and tension. And Paul says... Be anxious 
for nothing. Now, he's not speaking in a vacuum here. Again, he's imprisoned. <laughs> and, and if you read what he had previously said about all the stuff that he went through, the beatings, the whippings, the shipwrecks, the fastings, the hungerings, all of that. And yet in the midst of everything, he says, do not be anxious. Say, David, that's a lot harder said than done. I know it. Because I live in the exact same world as you live in. But this is the world that Paul lived in too. In fact, what he was going through is a million times worse than what we're facing. And yet he tells this church, do not be anxious. And it's interesting the word that he uses here for anxious. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, it's the same word that Jesus uses. Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is Sermon on the Mount. Verse 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry. Same word. Do not be anxious. Do not be overly concerned to the point where you're sick with worry and fretting. That's what he's saying. In fact, five times Jesus mentions worry towards the end of this chapter. Do not worry about your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor about your body. Again, Jesus knowing what was ahead and what was coming, what they would be facing, is telling them not to worry. Not even about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, how you're, what you're going to live. You remember he said, your heavenly Father knows that you need of all of these things to seek first the kingdom of God. But he's trying to take the worry out of us. In Matthew 13, in the parable of the seeds and the sower, And notice in his explanation here in verse 22 of Matthew 13. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world. There's that same word again, the cares of this world, the anxieties of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. What are we to eat every day? The word. What are we to dine on spiritually? The Word. What gives us the strength that we need for this Christian life? The Word. But what will choke the Word is worry and anxiety and fearfulness and fretting and the care of this world. You know, you think that, well, if I had more, if I had this, if I had that, if I had greater finances, if I had all this, if I, if I won the lottery, if I had all my worries would be over, no, it wouldn't. Man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses, Jesus said. Those things doesn't necessarily stop worry and care and anxiety. In fact, sometimes it exacerbates it. But he says, notice here, it chokes the word. In Luke 21... This word crops up again. 
in its relation to end times. Jesus in Luke 21, having been asked a question about, uh, you know, when's the end going to be? What will be the signs? And he goes and explains with earthquakes and various places and famines and pestilence and great signs and the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth. But then he goes on to say in verse 34, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life that that day come on you unexpectedly. In other words, do not get so distracted and taken up with the cares of this life, particularly in relation to Christ's coming. How many believe today that we are in the generation that is so close to the coming of Christ that's staring us in the face every time you open the paper, every time you watch the news, it's just bubbling up continually. The Russians are now involved in the Middle East and Syria. Listen, alarm bells should be ringing. Gog and Magog, Ezekiel. Alarm bells should be going off in our ears. The Lord is about to come. Hallelujah. Not a time to get overcome with the cares of this world. And so here's the Apostle Paul saying, be anxious for nothing. How do we do that? Here's the answer. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing, pray about everything. That's the paraphrase of that, isn't it? Be anxious for nothing, pray about everything. Everything that you feel could possibly make you anxious, talk to the Lord about it. Pray about it. Seek Him about it. Say, Lord, this is what I'm feeling. This is making me anxious. This is making me afraid. This is causing me to worry. Lord, help me. I don't want to be like this. And he will help us. He will leave that burden because he doesn't want us to choke us and choke the word that's in us. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. It's the normal word for prayer there. And supplication. What's supplication? Supplication is a, 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 an intense desire, a plea, a, a prayer that's desperate, a prayer that you must have an answer. Where you feel, you know, there's prayers that we pray every day. And I know that some of you maybe use a list, and that's good. I'm not in any way saying I'm derogatory against that, not at all. But sometimes we, we, we rattle off the prayers. But then there's other prayers that really, things that really, really concern us. And we're more intense with those prayers, aren't we? I mean, we're fervent in those prayers for that thing or that person or that situation, that supplication. That's what that means. But then he adds, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Isn't that a thing that we forget a lot? To be thankful. Jesus sent the ten lepers off, showed themselves to the priest, and as they went, they were cleansed. 
Only one come back. Jesus says, where are the nine? We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? There's only one came back. I'm not sure the percentage has changed much in 2,000 years. We, we forget to be thankful. Uh, and not just, not just thankful for what he has done, but to be thankful before he does it. To be thankful in advance. When was the last time you prayed for someone or something or some situation and the end of the prayer by saying, thank you, Lord, for that answer. Thank you, Lord, the answer's on the way. Thank you, Lord, you will intervene in that. Thank you, Lord, for what you are going to do. Hallelujah. It's, it's easier when it's done, isn't it? But you show some faith to give thanks before it's done. Sometimes somebody may come to you. Somebody, in fact, came to me this week. Two people, in fact. One rung me up and another person stopped me somewhere. And uh, they said they were going to do something uh, regarding the container that's going out. Haven't done it yet. One of them I know, one I don't know. So what did I do to say, well, hmm, I'll just wait and see if you do that. <laughs> that wouldn't be very grateful, would it? I said, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I'll be looking forward to that. He says, we'll be in touch very soon. Good, thank you so much. Why do we not say that to the Lord? Haven't got it yet, Lord, but I'm trusting you will send it. I'm trusting you will do it. So I'm just giving you thanks in advance. I appreciate the fact that you asked me to ask you, and I'm not, I don't believe I'm asking amiss. I believe I'm asking rightly. So Lord, I just thank you in advance for doing that. Thanks so much, Lord. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Ah. Peace of God which passes all human understanding. <coughs> These people had every reason to be anxious and fearful and worried and greatly concerned. But Paul is showing them a way how to live in the midst of that without losing our victory or losing our peace or losing our sense of blessing that the Lord has saved us and has cleansed us and we're on our way to heaven. We forget about that, don't we? We're reminded about it this morning at the table. But he says, this will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And the word guard there is a military term that Paul uses. It means to garrison, like sentinels guarding, standing around, guard your hearts and your minds, not letting anything in, <laughs> putting a guard up around you. Isn't that good? That's what Paul's saying. Your hearts and your minds.
Ah, you say, David, it's not my heart, it's my mind. It's my head. It's the old thought life. That's what really gets to me. That's what gets to us all, isn't it? That's what the battle is, isn't it? Our hearts, we love the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. We want to do the right thing. We want to be the right person. We want to do all of that right. That's our heart. But what about our heads? That's where the trouble comes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, the King James says, imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The battleground, the mind, is where these thoughts assail us. This is where the enemy will try to get a stronghold built in our thought life. Notice the word Paul uses here. Arguments. Thoughts, imaginations. The word in the original is logosmos, L-O-G-I-S-M-O-S, logosmos. And that's where we get the term logical from. Logical thinking. Now we have to use logical thinking every day of our lives. On its own per se, nothing wrong with that. But here's what happens. The devil comes along and he injects what is a rational, logical, sane, seemingly sensible idea or thought, but it's contrary to what God has said. In fact, it may be the opposite totally to what God has said, but it sounds logical, it sounds sensible, it sounds sane. And if we allow that to take hold and take preference over God's Word, then He can use that to build a stronghold. And often that's what He does. He certainly does it with the world all the time. <laughs> and that's what it sounds like. And He comes to us, we know what God's Word says, we know the attitude that we need to have in God's Word, but He comes with something else that just sounds so rational and logical and right, and we take that instead of God's Word, and it builds a stronghold. And it takes us captive. The trouble is then it gets hard to fight against because it sounds so right, so normal. So sensible, so logical. But if it's contrary to the Word of God, and always it will be if it comes from Him, then it provides a stronghold. It's purely natural reasoning. Another way He can get a stronghold in our thinking is that we have fears that are unfounded. We worry, we fret, 
We get anxious about many things that are never going to happen. Now, of course, you're all very spiritual people. None of you would do that. <laughs> None of you ever worry about something that's never going to happen. Say, David, I don't even know what you're talking about. Hmm. Of course we do. And it's a problem. It presents a stronghold, an illness that you'll never get, an accident that you'll never have, a failure that's not going to happen, a loss that you'll never experience. And on and on you could go. And they're not going to happen. But we worry that they will. We're anxious that they might. And the enemy uses that to build a stronghold in her life. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Either we take our thoughts captive or our thoughts will take us captive. Either we get a strong hold on our thoughts or our thoughts will build a strong hold in our lives, one or the other. What's a stronghold? W. E. Vine, the scholar, said a stronghold is it's the it's a there's two ways to look at it. a castle, a fortress. Something that is fortifying. Something that has the idea of holding something safely. You go to Carrickfergus Castle, it's one of the best Norman castles preserved. And you go in there and you see the great thick bulwarks, the ramparts, the portcullis as you go through with that hole where they poured hot tar down over the invaders. All of that was to stop invaders getting in to provide a safe place to stay. It was fortified. It was a fortress. And it's a good one. And survived a lot. But inside Carrickfergus Castle and in most castles you find something else. You'll find dungeons. Prison houses. Where people were perhaps captured and held there. And they were safely held there. Very hard to break out of a prison, isn't it? Especially if it's in a castle. You're in a dark hole. And if a stronghold is like that, is where the enemy wants to capture us in our thoughts. Like put us into a prison in our thoughts, and it's very hard to break out of that. It's designed to hold us. But not only is a prison hard to break out of, it's hard to break into. And sometimes when a person has got a, a thought or an idea and it's captured them, it, it's, it's a stronghold in their life, it's hard to break into them to give them the message that will set them free. <laughs> it's as hard to break in as it is to break out. So that's why it's important as much as we can not to allow a stronghold to develop. It's harder to deal with once it's developed into a stronghold. How often have you talked to somebody who has had a, a thought or an idea, they're anxious about something, 
and you've tried to talk to them. You know you've got a word. You know you've got a message. You know you've got a scripture, but they're just not listening. They're not hearing. Why? Because they're locked into that. And it's a stronghold. So Paul says, casting down every argument, every imagination. You know that the devil's a liar, don't you? Jesus called him the father of lies. He is a genius at lying. An expert liar. A professional liar. He can make lies, outrageous lies, seem so real and right. And that's what captures people. So we need to be careful. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The peace of God which surpasses all understandings will stand guard around your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, not much of that about today on television. Not much pure on TV, is there? Not much noble. Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, not many good reports either, sure there's not. They usually try to stick some wee funny thing on at the end of the news. They used to do that for years. Give you all the bad news, all the bad reports, and then kind of just cheer you up a wee bit at the end. They stuck something at the end just to make you laugh. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate, fix your mind on these things. That's good advice, isn't it? Eight different things, Paul said, that we can fix our mind on. When your mind's racing all over the shop and there's all kinds of fiery darts coming against you, and all kinds of lies of the evil one aimed at you. You have to fix your mind on these things. I remember reading a book uh, many years ago. It was some of the guys that was captured. I think it was in Iran. They were held for like four years in solitary confinement. And forget the one now that said this, but he said that just the thought of a flower or of an apple. He says, in the blackness of that dungeon, in that hellhole of a place that was driving men insane, he says, just getting your mind fixed on something as beautiful, he says, as an apple or a flower. He says, that kept me from going insane. Paul gives us eight things here. And in those eight things, there could be a thousand things that we need to fix our mind on. When the devil's bombarding you continually, trying to wear you down, say, hold on a minute. I can either take all night and think about that, or I can think about something else. 
I can think of as something noble, something pure, something of good report, something that's praiseworthy. I'm going to meditate on that. Then I said, the things which you heard and received and heard and, sorry, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. My admiration for the Apostle Paul grows immensely every time I read some of those statements that he writes. See, sometimes we read the Bible and we scan over it and we skip through it and we never stop to think, what was the context? What was the situation that he said that? Now you know the situation. It means much more, doesn't it? Not just empty words here. He's living this. This is every day of his life. He's having to do this. These things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. I know a brother. He's a preacher. I'll not mention his name, but some of you would know him. Several years ago, he was about to... Uh, preach in a, in a crusade he was having and uh, he had been fitting on well uh, some months prior to it and uh, he had went to his doctor who had referred him to consultant consultant got some scans done and so forth and he said before I, I went to hold this crusade I said to my consultant as soon as you get any news uh, give me a call that's my number and he told me, he said, I was 15 minutes from going out to preach. My consultant called me and said, uh, I've got some results for you. And he says, I knew the way he'd said that in the tone of his voice, it wasn't going to be good. So he says, tell me. And he says, you've got cancer. And it's in a place that would be very, very, very dangerous to operate He says, thank you for telling me. He says, I put the phone down, my phone, I fold, put it in. I sat down 10 minutes before I got to preach. What have I been going to do? Certainly wasn't going to cancel. A lot of people out there come to hear him. He said, Lord, you've heard what the consultant said. It doesn't look good but I'm going to trust you anyway. I'm going to believe you and I'm going to believe your word in spite of what I've just heard. Amen. That was eight years ago. I had lunch with him just towards the end of last year and he was telling me, that was eight years ago. He said, you know the strange thing? He says, he told me I would be in agony, that I would I'd be dead by now, of course, that I would, uh, it would be an awful, it would be very difficult. Uh, pain would be shocking. He says, you know, I never had any of that. <laughs> never had any of that. But he said, he says, here's the strange thing. He says, that tumor is still there in the same place eight years later. Tumor's still there. Still there to this day as I speak. And he says, every single day of my life, I have to say, Lord, I'm still trusting you. <laughs> Can you imagine that? 
That takes a bit of courage, doesn't it? And he's holding meetings all over the place. All over the place. I think he would be a good example of what I just said there today, actually. And the God of peace will be with you. Isn't this a lovely little book, isn't it? It's just so rich. There's just so much in it to encourage us, to inspire us, to help us to get through the stuff of life. Because there's a lot of stuff in life, isn't there? I mean, everybody gets knocks. Everybody gets knocked sideways sometimes, don't you? Stuff just comes out of the blue. You never thought it. You never expect it. Bang. Wham. What are you going to do? Paul says, this is what you do. This is what you do. And the God of peace will be with you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.